Well, like I was saying, based on the fact we had a Bible read-through, we're giving away a Bible at Redemption Church, we love the Bible. We love the Word of God because it is, in fact, God's Word to us. We love the Word of God. And what we've been doing for the last few months is going through a series that we have called Sunday School, uh, but it's from this kind of uncut perspective. In other words, a lot of us, maybe as kids, we went to church and went to Sunday school and we learned these various stories that we see on the screen behind us. And and, and we sort of looked at those in almost anecdotal ways. We looked with the intent of figuring out life lessons. That's typically how they're taught in Sunday school. What's the life lesson? In fact, even Paul refers to the Old Testament. And he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so when we walk into a Sunday school class to teach kids or kids come in to learn, we often just kind of go to that place of, well, here's the lesson that you can grapple with. Here's the one or two little things that you can take away, as well as a craft that mom and dad have to figure out how to throw away in a couple of days without you knowing. All right. So that's Sunday school. That's typically how we approach it. Right. But see, the Old Testament is more than just a series of spiritualized Aesop's fables. It's not just, hey, look at these stories, figure out the good character and the bad character and the right morals and the wrong morals, and then go live it. I mean, that does some of that. But there's something deeper to the Old Testament. There's something more deeply infused into it that I don't want us to look at this morning. In fact, Jesus speaks to this. And he speaks to it at one of the coolest times because uh, basically what's happened is that everybody thinks he's lost. Jesus is defeated, right? So he goes to the cross, he suffers, he dies, he's buried, and everybody says, game over, man. Game over. This is not going the way we thought. He's dead and gone, and now we just got to pick up the pieces. And some people stay in the city, but other people begin to travel. And there's a couple of individuals that are traveling on the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, a stranger comes upon them. Now, this is on the third day. Now, they don't know that something profound, earth-shattering has happened on the third day. They have no clue. They're just walking in sadness. Our Lord, our teacher, our guide, he's dead. It's over. The whole plan is shot. But then the stranger comes onto the scene. And the stranger begins to speak to them. And he says, was it not necessary I mean, you're lamenting that your Lord died. But was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things to enter into his glory? Wasn't that required? It says, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things that concerned himself. So this is Jesus risen. They just don't know it yet. And he says, all that stuff, all that real estate in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, boy, they are teaching something about the Messiah. And so after he talks to them, it says in verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures? There's something about inside the scriptures when taught with authority and taught with conviction and taught with joy and taught with hope that there's life in there. And, and so these men, they're like, man, we could, we could sense it. We kept feeling some powerful swelling as he taught the scriptures. Then Jesus says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. 
And then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And, they, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So what we see really at the core of every one of those stories is something more than the story. In fact, what we see in every story is Jesus. Jesus dwells in every story. Jesus dwells in every book of the Old Testament. Every paragraph, every word is pointing to, celebrating, typologically showing, or proclaiming that He is God and He is coming. That's why you have the Old Testament still. It proclaims Him fully. See, this is why as we have had every Sunday an image come up. You can bring up this next slide, Jim. You have had basically the Where's Waldo of the Bible, right? I mean, you probably notice every week, like, who's the guy in the back? Who's the little creepy character? I can barely understand what he's all about. I know he's in the lion's den with Daniel. Weird. Because Jesus is in every story. He's in every story. He constantly is coming up in some way, whether it be with Noah, where God says, you know what? I will never destroy the world again, but one day I will redeem all things through your offspring, pointing to Jesus. Whether it be to bless the nations when he tells Abraham, there will be one from your offspring that changes everything. Whether it be the story of David, where it's like there's going to be a truer and better David that comes and restores a kingdom that will never end. Whether it be through Nehemiah when he builds a church, a prototype of what Jesus would build. Jesus is in the story. Whether it be Jonah the rebel and the great fish and how Jesus would die just like in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights and then come again. See, Jesus is in all of it. God has always been proclaiming in every story one foundational truth. I'm coming. I'm coming. I will redeem broken hearts and broken lives and broken souls. I will come. I will invade your space. My very own son, I will send. My very own self will suffer. I will come. See, that's what today is really all about. It's really about how God said, you know what, I'm going to show up and I'm going to invade your space. And when I do that, I am going to remove the shame because I will bear the sin. I will ease the suffering. I will give you purpose. I will revive your spirit. I will restore your soul. I will make all things new. I will make all things new. The challenge is that this story... This series of events, it doesn't come with ease or convenience. It doesn't come pristine or comfortable. In fact, it's not even welcomed. Here's the big challenge about the Christmas story. And, and I, I could say it probably like this. Uh, one of the challenges we have when we think about Jesus coming into the world is we have uh, insulated it quite a bit. If anything, we've even kind of made it a mythology very clean, very quiet. It's a silent night. It's a 
holy night. All is calm. See, that, that's our image. We put nativity sets up in our, our living room or den or whatever, and, and they're very picturesque, and everybody seems so peaceful. It seems so easy, so tranquil. Yet when we look at the story today, we find that the story of the birth of Jesus is no different than every other story we have learned in this entire series. It is a story laden, you ready? With suffering. Merry Christmas. All right, so. It's a story of suffering. Right? And I know some of us, you're already like, dude, you are popping my Christmas bubble, man. I was riding the Christmas high, and you were in here, and you, you're bringing me down. No, if anything, I think by the end of this, you'll go, okay, I see the greatness, the greatness of the Christmas story. I see what it took, why it's precious. Because here's the reality about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The good news, the gospel is free. But you ready? It cost everything. It cost everything. Everything. That's why it's so great a salvation, because it took so much suffering to achieve. See, when we celebrate what Jesus has done, we know that. We know, even though it's a celebration, we know that there was cost and there was pain. There was hardship, but sometimes we don't always realize how much it started right from the get-go. With Jesus the baby. Not just Jesus the man at 33 years of age or at 30 years of age when his ministry started, but it starts right at the beginning. And a lot of people are involved. Now it starts in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this is uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is her uh, cousin. It says, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Now, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. I'm sure she understood the words, but she just freaked out, right? What does he mean? I know what he means. It's just freaking me out because he's glowing and floating, and that's an angel, and that's weird. All right. So, the angel says, Don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. For he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. And his kingdom will never end. Now we read this right here and again. We kind of see this tranquil moment. But for Mary it's not that. For Mary it's just this unbelievable event that freaks her out. It creates great fear and great distress instantaneously. Because instantaneously, because she's like, I've never experienced this before, and put it in the context of who she is. She is this unsophisticated, uneducated, uh, sort of unrespected or disrespected within the culture, just simply being a female. She's about 13 years old. She's unmarried. And for whatever reason, God shows up with an ambassador who's this angel and says, you know what? Hey, God's going to use you. God has plans for your life. Now, as the angel says this, the angel knows what this is. This isn't just an announcement. This is a declaration of war. 
Like God is on the move. This is divine intervention, right? This is that whole counteroffensive that everybody's been waiting for for so long. God is now instigating it, but he's doing it in the life of a teenage girl, a nobody that lives nowhere with nothing to bring to the table. She has nothing to bring. Nothing. She is the lowest class and the lowest of the low class in a low class town. She is the least likely, and that's why God picks her. Right? We love greatness. We love the strongest, the smartest, the mightiest, the educated. And God says, no, 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 I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to use the least likely and the least anticipated. In fact, it says, you have found favor. That word favor is the word grace. Mary, you have found grace. It's been bestowed on you. Again, not because you could bring anything to the table, but because you can't bring anything to the table. Right? So right from the beginning, themes begin to emerge. God takes the least to make them the greatest. God dispenses grace on those who have nothing to offer. So Jesus didn't wait till 30 to start his ministry. His ministry is underway before he's even conceived. Because his ministry has been underway since the very beginning of all things. He's on the move, right? And so what does this angel say? Well, his name's going to be Jesus. Salvation is from the Lord. That's his name. Salvation is from the Lord. And he says that he will be very great. And we look at that and go, that's right, he's going to be very great. But think about what that means. He's going to be greatly assaulted. Greatly attacked, greatly criticized, greatly persecuted, greatly rejected, greatly taunted, greatly tortured, greatly slaughtered. This is the story of Christmas. You will be great. He'll be greatly surrendered, greatly dependent, greatly patient, and greatly committed. Because he knows that to be the greatest requires in God's plan that you be the least. The greatest is the least. Right? Jesus knows this. God knows this and he goes to one of the least. He goes to this least likely teenage girl. And so the girl wants to know, well, how is this going to take place? Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, but how will this happen? I'm a virgin. Great question. All right. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Just like the scene in Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit was over the waters. Or in Exodus 40 where the Spirit was over the tabernacle. Now the Spirit will come over Mary. And the first person of the Trinity will conceive the second person of the Trinity through the power of the third person of the Trinity. So Father, Son, and Spirit are in concert. At this event. And they've always been in concert. They created in concert. They will save in concert. Christ will come in concert. He will minister in concert. He will die in the concert of the Trinity. He will rise in the concert of the Trinity. He will consume all things in the concert of the Trinity. So the Trinity is fully engaged. Fully and powerfully, right? So the angel says, The baby born to you will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. 
So what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant at her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Your son will be uncommon, holy. He will be son of God, true and equal to God. And men, proof that God can do anything, look at your cousin, look at you. God is flexing. He's flexing. He's moving. And it's with this that Mary says, I think, one of the boldest things anybody can say. She says in verse 30, uh, 38, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said come true. Now, we just look at that and go, wow, that's great. How special is that? She sees what's going on. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. Let's do it. But let me guarantee you, that phrase, that commitment to exercise what God wants her to do is going to mean for her, you ready? Suffering. When God says, I want you to do something hard, and you say, okay, there is no guarantee after that. He says, oh, because I said it was going to be hard, and then you said, okay, now I'm going to make it easy. Now, here's what it means for Mary when she okay, says, okay, do what you want to do. She's a 13-year-old girl that now is going to go around in town and say, honestly, I know, I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. Uh, try that one today, see how it goes. Right? So in her culture, her reputation, destroyed. Destroyed. Completely destroyed. With that, her security is shot. Why? Because she's engaged to a guy that is not going to keep her under those conditions. Who's going to believe that you got pregnant by God? <laughs> right? Nobody's going to believe it. So she's going to get dumped. She's not going to have any fiscal help from anybody. She's going to have a tarnished reputation. If we make it really, really simple, let me modernize it for you. She will be a whore and her son will be a bastard. That's how simple it is. We are way more tolerant in our culture of this kind of situation than hers was. Hers was fine with grabbing a rock and chucking it and killing a 13-year-old girl to solve the problem. So when you think about, oh, how special it is, Mother Mary of Jesus, you know, how great. No, for her, this is, this is heavy stuff. This is a painful undertaking. So God says, I invite you to change the world, Mary, but it's going to mean suffering. You're going to be uncertain, you're going to be fearful, you're going to be challenged, you're going to be ostracized. But all great things are often birthed out of the context of suffering. But I love the maturity of Mary. Like, she's already going to register this. I mean, again, she's, she's not naive to the realities, but then what she does is she praises the Lord. It says, Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He took notice of His lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me Blessed. For the mighty one is holy and he has done great things for me. Even though she knows it's going to mean suffering, he's still done great things for me. She sees the big picture. He shows mercy from generation to generation for all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has stretched out the proud. He scattered them, right? The haughty ones he's reduced. He has brought down princes and their thrones and exalted the humble. She is the humblest of the humble, and now she's being exalted. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. 
For he made promises to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. What's great about this, this is the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. That's what this is. She sees that something's underway that they have all longed for. It goes back to Abraham and God says, Abraham, in your seed, in your offspring, in a descendant of yours, I will change, transform, and save the nations. That's what I'll do. And she knows it's underway. And so she thanks God for what God is doing. And so she is prayed up. She is praised up. Now she needs to go fess up. That's a very hard undertaking. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, you see the story from the other side. You've been seeing it from the side of Mary. Now you flip over and you see the side of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. It says this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you stop right there. Imagine that conversation. I mean, honestly... Put yourself in her sandals for just a minute. Here she is, 13, maybe 14, maybe, has this unbelievable information, never, never, ever been heard of before in their culture, in their Hebrew scriptures. And she has to sit Joseph down and say, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm pregnant. And I've never been with anybody. And you just got to believe me even though we don't even know each other that well because it's a deranged thing because mom and dad, it's crazy. Anyway, all right, so God, it's not like he fell in love with her and wants to marry her. It's just deranged, but now he's supposed to just accept it. Not a very easy thing to do at all. Very painful, very ugly. I'm sure lots of tears, lots of pleading. I promise, I promise he didn't do it. Honestly, there's this angel, he came and he told me. Uh Uh-huh, we live in Nazareth. This is a hick town. Nothing good comes out of here. Everybody knows that. Right? So Joseph has to face this. It says in verse 19, Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man. He did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now, I think this is really interesting because he's a righteous man or a just man. Which means he could be a man of the law in letter, but he's a man of the law in spirit. So he could really easily say, you know what? Hey, sorry, it's off. We're done. Grab a rock, everybody. We're going to go and throttle this girl. Because the law says, because I'm a righteous man who keeps the law. But he realizes what God desires from the law, where God says, I desire mercy, not simply sacrifice. I want tender hearts, not just firm resolve. I want somebody I can lead, not just somebody that wants to do. And so he sees the character of Joseph even here, and we see it for our lives. And so Joseph says, no, no, I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I got to face this. She's pregnant. She says it's God's. That's silly. No way. I don't know. So I'm just going to put her away quietly. Which is pretty impressive. Because at this point, the whole town is going to know. You know, because like, you know, pregnancy, you don't hide it well, right? So like Mary's, you know, starting to show more and more. And everybody's going to be like, wasn't that Joseph's? Oh, right. That's what they're going to do. It's like Duval, all right? So, um, ooh, that's our, that's our motto, right? So, ooh, all right, so, um, so everybody's going to know, and they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to think, oh, Joseph knocked her up and didn't marry her, 
or somebody else did it, and Joseph was disrespected and, and not shown a proper respect. And, and, and so either way you slice it, it's just not good for Joseph. He's going to come out looking bad because he's going to end this relationship. But it's the only thing he knows how to do, but he's going to do it concerned about her well-being. All right? It says in verse 20, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child that she has conceived is by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. A number of things are important there. The first thing is it's this conception by the Holy Spirit. We always say it's the virgin birth. Trust me, there was nothing virgin about the birth. That was miserable. But it was a virgin conception, all right? It's like, you know, virgin birth, I'm like, no, that was a bad night. But the conception, that was really virgin, all right? So that is the first thing. And we go, well, does that really matter? Even some people today say, does the virgin birth really even count? Is it that critical? What if it's just mythology for some deeper thing? Here's the deal. If Jesus wasn't conceived in a virgin's womb by the power of God, we're all going to hell. We're all going to hell because he couldn't atone for our hell. He couldn't be perfect and pure to deal with our hell because the seed of sin is passed through all men at all times. And if Jesus had a human dad, Jesus had sin. He didn't have a human dad, doesn't have sin. So the virgin conception matters. That's why it's celebrated. It's why it's so elevated in Scripture. Because it matters. And so it's this virgin mom is carrying God in her womb. It says more than that, he says he's going to save his people from their sins. Not from their problems, but from their problem. Not from all their situations, but from the one situation that matters, their soul's condition. And this is a great reminder. If we go, hey man, I want to keep my sins, but I want to acquire heaven. I want to do what I want to do, but I want to make sure when I die, I get to go hang out and hang with God. I think we're missing then what Jesus came to do. He didn't simply come to spare you. He came to free you. To free you. To free all of us from our sins. The angel then continues in all of this. He says, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is huge. Right? That God actually wants to come and dwell. That God wants to actually make the investment. I mean, He is God, we are not. He can do anything He wants, and what He decides is I'm going to come, and I'm going to spend time, and I'm going to connect with my creation that often, if ever, just rejects me. I mean, it just constantly is against me, and yet I want it. And I think it's a great reminder. I look at this passage often. It's one of my favorite texts. Weirdly, people are like, really? Matthew chapter 1 is like your favorite place. It's awesome. For this very thing right here, because what it reminds me every single day is that God wants to spend time with me every single day. And every single day, I should not neglect so great a gift. Right? To leave time, make room for the presence of God in my life. Not just, oh, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. That's good enough. But a realized sense of presence where I sense His life in mine. His soul riding on my soul. Right? That's how God wants to come and be with us. And so that's the promise of Emmanuel. So it says, When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until the son was born. 
Just like with Mary, Joseph says, I'll obey. And as Joseph obeys, remember what he's going to be seen as. He's going to be a pushover. He's going to be gullible. He'll marry the town tramp. That's what he'll have done. He'll probably lose work. He'll probably lose friends. He'll probably, most definitely, lose respect. In other words, the story of the birth of Jesus is a story of suffering. He says, I want you to change the world, Joseph. And it's going to take suffering to do it. And so you have this teenage couple at this point. 13 and maybe 18. Freaky, huh? If you have teenagers, I know. It's them against the world, but with God. But with God. Even though it's going to be difficult and challenging, God's going to use them for greatness. Because they're surrendered. They say, whatever you want, God, I'll do whatever you want. Well, in Luke chapter 2, we see the time comes. It says, at that time... The Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. The census is for taxation, more suffering, all right? So, um, and so because of this, they had to return to their own ancestral town to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. So he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, took Mary to be his fiance, or took Mary, who was his fiance, and she was now obviously pregnant. And while there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. And she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now, a couple of things that are important. First of all, this isn't about 6 B.C. When you think Jesus was born in 0 A.D., no, he wasn't. Everybody got the calendar wrong. He's born like in 6 B.C., right? So there's myth number one dissolved. Myth number two, this wasn't December 25th. Sorry. And you're like, no. Say it ain't so, Matt. Say it ain't so. All right. It's not December 25th. It's not 0 AD. It's 6 BC. And it's probably sometime in the spring. Jesus was about celebrating Easter for his birthday is what he's doing. All right. So then the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 100 miles. And imagine that, ladies, being in your third trimester. Woohoo! 100 mile road trip. Now notice what's not in this text. Mary was writing a... Nothing. There's nothing she's writing. It doesn't say donkey. Another myth destroyed. You're killing us, Matt. All right. So we will kill so many myths today. It'll be sad. All right. We are rewriting Christmas to be the way Christmas was written. That's what we're doing. All right. So so she is third trimester. No evidence she's writing anything. She's just having to take this long haul. You go like, why would Joseph actually put her through that? Well, I really do believe it's because her life was not safe back home. Joseph was the only protection she had from the reputation that she had uh, received from her culture because of her situation. So he's like, no matter what, honey, I just got to take you with me. You need to go. Right? It wasn't required for her to be a part of the census. Just him. He says, I got to just do this. And then they get to the city, which is actually a very small town. Right? And there's no room with relatives. They go to the local hostel. There's no room at the local hostel. And so the only thing they can get is not a barn, it's actually a cave where it's like, oh, we keep the animals there. You, you can go into the cave, right? So imagine, again, ladies and men, right? You've just taken a hundred mile trip, you've left a town that pretty much rejects you. 
You go to a town that you have relatives there. Maybe you can stay with them during the census. Nobody can take you in. Your wife begins to go into labor. And all you get is a stinky, cold, dark cave. Oh, silent night. No, man, it's not. It's, it's not silent night. It's not your nativity scene at all. This is a scene of suffering all the way. Long trip is suffering. The census is suffering. The town is suffering. The accommodations is suffering. And the birth is suffering. Fear, fatigue, stress, sweat, pain, blood, just rank smell. Here's this trembling 18-year-old carpenter, right? Calloused hands from working wood, now trying to figure out how to receive this bloody small child. And here's Mary, right? Pushing and straining and fighting in cold darkness. I don't even know what she's laying on. She doesn't have her mother's hand to hold. She doesn't have her family around her. And when this is done, she can't just warm up by the fire in the house. She can't lay on a nice bed. None of that is there. It is complete and total misery. And when it's all done, they take the child and they basically lay him in a dog bowl. Here's the feeding trough. Here's this dugout thing that we can lay the baby in as we're ripping strips of cloth to wrap him. It is a night of suffering, but for the glory of God. Isaiah talks about when the Messiah comes. Um, that, that he would come as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it began day one. Day one. And the Gospels will be a witness to the fact that the establishment, um, you know, they're, they're not really keen to Jesus. And his birth shows that the establishment isn't keen, keen, keen to him at all. I mean, they're, they're, he's just in a cave with his teenage parents. In a foreign town. He's foreign to his family. But what's also interesting is who God calls upon in the scene. Right? It's not the establishment that's told, hey, your Messiah's been born. No, it's an unlikely group of guys. That night, it says in Luke chapter 2, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks a sheep. Now you have to understand, shepherds in this culture were ignorant, outcast, thieving, unclean, and irreligious. Nobody liked shepherds. Nobody. Nobody liked to hang around with shepherds because they don't smell good. And they're not funny. They tell jokes that nobody understands because they're shepherds. Right? So that's like, the, that's like the guy when you see the shepherds in town, you're like, oh, I don't know him. Did you guys go to junior high? No, I don't remember the dude. You know, like, that's, that's what you go through with a shepherd. All right? And because it's springtime and they're out in their fields, there's a reason they're out there. It's in springtime that the shepherds would take the sheep out and they would wait for the birth of little lambs. So they're out there waiting for that. We're just waiting for lambs to be born. That's our job right now. That's what we're up to. They do it out in the open like that and they make sure that nothing comes and takes the newborn lambs. So that's their mission. But then suddenly it says in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. Yes, I would be too. But their angel reassured them, don't be afraid. I'd be like, yeah, right, all right, I'll work on that. He says, I bring you good news, I'll bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born to you in Bethlehem, the city of David. You will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in 
a manger. How weird does that seem? I mean, we hear it so many times, we don't see how weird it is. I mean, break it down. He's the Lord, the one in charge. He is the Messiah, the chosen one. He's the Savior, the rescuer and deliverer that is greater than King David. Where do I find him? In a feeding trough. I mean, that's a big disconnect. Uh, uh, wouldn't I find him uh, as like a full-grown dude with like a sword and a big horse? Not a baby wrapped up in clothing? Strips of cloth at that? Hanging out and basically a dog bowl? It's a shocker. No sooner did they begin to process this, verse 13, so suddenly the angel was joined by vast hosts of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to whom God is pleased. Now we always picture this scene like suddenly a giant boy band choir breaks out. That is not this. You know, like always like, no, this does not say heaven's choir. It says heaven's army. Again, like I said, the birth of Jesus is a declaration of war. It is a demarcation. It is a line in the sand. This planet has been held sway by darkness, by Satan, by sin far too long. And now God has come. And the armies of heaven stand at order. And they begin to battle cry and chant. But it's unlike anything normal armies battle cry. They're celebrating glory, 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 glory. Glory, glory. That's what they're saying. It's like an army chanting. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Peace. That is not normally what an army battle cries. But they know that's exactly what is underway. That God is bringing peace. Peace with God, between us and God. Peace between one another. And peace within ourselves. All of that is what He is going to provide. And the way he does it, go back to what his call sign is. Emmanuel. God with us. All the way through the series, I have been saying that peace is not the absence of strife. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not the absence of hardship. Peace is the presence of God. God with us is peace. In your own life, and my own life, if we go, I don't sense peace, I will bet you, you also don't sense God. I will bet you are not striving after God as much as you're striving after solutions for all your craziness and chaos and hurt and pain and history. I have learned painfully how much I milk those things and find no satisfaction. But then when I just say, God, I just want you. I'm just desperate for you. I want your presence in my life. Man, there is peace. Why? Because peace is God with us. That's why Christmas matters peace on earth to all whom God has shown his favor. And so they're just chanting this, this battle cry of victory that is coming. I love it. So, when the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. <laughs> I think so too. All right, Let's see this thing that has happened that the Lord has told us about. So they hurried, hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph and there was the baby lying in the manger. Scene reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. An obedient son born to an obedient mother, an obedient adoptive father. Right? All of them facing suffering for the glory of God. So he's going to be raised by like these teenage parents. He's going to be in an, in an environment very different than the throne that he's come from. And he's coming to a nation that is not prepared for him. But there are some who are seeking him. In fact, it says, Then it was time for their purification offering, in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So the parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came in to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there and he took the child in his arms, praising God and saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace of you as you have promised. For I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all peoples, not just Israel. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about their little baby. And I love this. Think about Simeon's whole life. He's been studying the scriptures. And so he studies uh, the fall in Eden. And he goes, man, there's coming a day where one will change all of this. And he knows the story of Noah and the story of Abraham and the story of Joseph and the story of Moses and the story of Joshua and the story of... David, all these stories we study, he knows all those stories. He knows how the Messiah is in all of those stories. And now he's holding the Messiah. All those years of thinking about what would he be like and what would he do and how would he do it. And God, you promised I get to see him. And now it's just these little tiny contours of a face holding the promise. I love it. He's holding, just knowing the blessing that this one will bring. But he also knows the suffering that this one will cause. So it says, then Simon blessed them and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul. That's called a blessing. I'm not sure. Um, let me bless you. It's not going to go so hot always. That's what he says. He says the good news has bad news. The ambassador of peace will provoke open war. The greatest will be reduced to the least because the least are going to be elevated to greatness. He will come and bring an offering of grace, but others are going to say, no, 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 I want my efforts and my works and my accomplishments to be enough. He will come to his own. His own won't receive him. And he says, Mary, that's going to pierce your soul. A lot of things are going to pierce your soul. The way his whole thing finally ends is going to run a sword straight through you. So how do we look at the birth of Jesus? Well, it is a season of suffering, but it is suffering for the glory of God. That's what it is. And begins right at the inception, Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Herod was not a good guy. He started out as an okay guy. Very accomplished, very renowned, had a lot of skills, but eventually he gets all corrupted and freaked out, kills his wife, kills three of his sons, and the guy just eventually becomes paranoid about his power. All right? 
But about that same time, there was wise men from eastern lands who arrived in Jerusalem. Notice it isn't we three kings of Orientar. It's not kings. There's not three. Boom, boom. More myth killed. All right. So it is wise men, right? And it seems that there are a lot of wise men because in verse two, it says, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw a star as it arose and we have come to worship him. Then King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. That's not three dudes on camels rolling in and we go, whoa, three old dudes, scary. That isn't it. It is a huge entourage. There's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of people rolling into town, this big entourage from the east. And people are nervous. In fact, the whole city is anxious. So uh, Herod calls a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. And he says, hey, where's the Messiah to be born? And they say, oh, that's easy. Bethlehem. Everybody knows it's in Bethlehem. We've been studying this for years. It's a prophecy that he will rise up in Bethlehem and he will shepherd my people Israel. But you know what's so tragic? That's where they stop. So the city is anxious, but the religious leadership is apathetic. Well, this is the Messiah. Where's he going to be born? Eh, Bethlehem. You can eat that hot pocket. You know what I mean? Like they, they don't even go find out. They don't want to see. So while the city is anxious and the leaders are apathetic, Herod begins to become angry inside. It just has to come out. So Herod calls for a private meeting with the wise men. He learned the time from when the star first appeared. It's about two years, right? So he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. Liar. All right. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. And they went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Notice it doesn't say the baby. It's the child. By the time the wise men or the magi come, he's probably two years old. Boom. Another myth destroyed. All right. That's where now you have to go home to your nativity and go, these three dudes have to go way over here. All right, so. (laughs) Got to put them far east corner of the house, all right, um, until he's two, and then you can move them. All right, so. Works great. So when they saw the star, they were filled with joy, and they entered the house. Not the barn, not the cave, the house. Sorry, your your whole mythology is all messed up. All right, so. um, And they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Right? Kingly gifts. And it was time to leave. They returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So then, after the wise men were gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He says, get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search to kill the child. So that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until the death of Herod, which fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. When Herod heard this, he was furious. When he realized the wise men had outwitted him, he sent soldiers to kill the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the, when the star first appeared. It says, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. To put this in perspective, the region of Bethlehem there, basically size, and if you kind of do a demographic study of age-wise, uh, it's, it's, it's almost precisely the same amount as children that were killed in Connecticut. So to kind of bring the idea home, when we go, well, the birth of Jesus, it's such this 
silent night, holy night, calm, tranquil event. No, the whole story is told in the Bible as this series of, of, of suffering events and hardships and difficult things and being obedient in the face of all of that. And yet all of this reminds us that the world is filled with suffering. All of it reminds us that we need a Savior. The birth of Jesus is a giant declaration that the world is in fact damaged and held under sin and held under, more importantly, Satan. He is the one that does the damage. He is the one that brings the hate. He is the one that brings the destruction. He is the one that revels in people bowing to a thousand different idols instead of the one true God. He is the one that loves it when everybody wants to work their way to heaven as opposed to receive God's sovereign grace. He loves that. So he brings misery and fatigue and challenge and hurt and pain. In fact, it's interesting. We've seen this from the perspective of Joseph, the perspective of Mary, the perspective of King Herod. We've seen it from all these perspectives. Did you know the Bible gives you a behind-the-scenes supernaturally of what's also going on? Revelation chapter 12. It says, I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and with a crown of 12 stars on her head, and she was pregnant. That's Mary. And she cried out from her labor pains in agony of giving birth. When I said it's suffering, that's why I tell you it's suffering. It says, then I witnessed in heaven another uh, significant event. I saw a red dragon, large, with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept one-third of the stars out of the sky. That is angels that have been turned to demons. And he threw them to the earth, and he stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Who was working in Herod's life? The enemy. Satan is there behind Herod, coaxing, pushing, driving the anger. Kill the child when he's born. Why? Because she gave birth to a son who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. See, this story is way bigger. In fact, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve rebelled, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild, and you will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The whole thing is a battle. Life, death, darkness, light, despair, hope, faith, no faith, freedom, bondage, truth, lie. It's all what it is. That's what it is. That's what Jesus comes into the world to deal with. And so, the enemy, Satan, will, will strike and strike and strike. He strikes when he's an infant, but he doesn't kill him. He strikes again when he starts his ministry in a 40-day, 40-night temptation. Doesn't get him. Strikes throughout his ministry. Doesn't get him. But he keeps striking, keeps striking, keeps striking. Because it's a battle. Well, after everything transpires and Jesus is down in Egypt for a while, he comes back. Right? Joseph is told in a dream... You can return. And so they come, but they don't go back to Bethlehem. They go back to their original city, a city called Nazareth. And it fulfilled what the prophet said. He will be called a Nazarene. Again, this is another one of those grinding of gears. Nazarenes were hicks. They were dweebs. Nobody liked Nazarenes. Right? They were mocked. You were from Nazareth. You were nobody. You were nothing. You offered nothing to the equation of life. Even early in Jesus' ministry, he meets Nathaniel. Where are you from? Nazareth. Whoa, nothing good comes from there. 
Thank you. That's awesome. Nice to meet you too. Right? But it's a title that's going to stick. Jesus the Nazarene. This title of derision. He will be the empowered Nazarene, the prophetic Nazarene, the exorcist Nazarene, the healing Nazarene. He will also be the rejected Nazarene, the despised Nazarene, the arrested Nazarene, the denied Nazarene, the crucified Nazarene, where the placard above his head will say this, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It sticks. He will be the buried Nazarene. So the birth and the life of Jesus of Nazareth was suffering. But it was suffering for greater glory. Jesus rises and he assembles his apostles and he says, you know what, man, game on. Enemy is defeated. The enemy is beat. We got him on his heels now because he was striking, striking, striking. And I crushed him on the cross. Crushed. And because of that, the gospel is unhinged in the world. And so Peter says, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene. That name of derision, right? That name that you would think could do nothing. No, he endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders and signs through him, as you well know. And God knew what would happen. This was the prearranged plan God carried out when Jesus was betrayed. And with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and you killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life again because death could not keep its grip. That's what today is about more than anything else. It's not just the sweet little baby wrapped in cloth. It is the great Lord of glory who comes and dies and rises and saves. And that's what Peter knows. And that's what Peter celebrates. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate. That's why this matters. That's why when Paul said back in Philippians, though he was God, he did not think equality with God is something to be clung to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died. A criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. That's what it's about. That he came, he obeyed, he suffered, he gave. But there's an end. I close with this. Revelation chapter 5. John is writing. He says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. That's God. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Right? This is the title deed to the earth. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. So I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I looked and I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. 
It was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirits of God that are sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held great bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed many people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've caused them to become a great kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on earth forever and ever, ever and ever. And I looked again and I heard the voice of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders. They sang with a great and mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you were so willing to come to us, people that are so unwilling that you gave to us people that are so often unwilling to give. That you suffered for a people who would never choose suffering in and of ourselves if we could create the world in our image. So on this day, we praise you for what you've done, for how you've done it. As we give our offering, we do it for what you have done. As we prepare for communion, we do it for what you've done. As we sing to you, we do it for what you've done. You are worthy, and we love you in your name.